A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's gonna get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. It comes with a 20-year warranty. And a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Nora Loretto, writer, activist, organizer, joining me from Quebec City. Hello. Hi. It's nice to hear your voice and speak off Twitter. <laughs> Today, we are going to talk about jobs, Nora. Jobs, men and trucks and jobs and, and vests, but really just jobs. That is what this is about. It's the only thing it's about, or so I'm told. And we will also talk about butts coverage. Welcome. <laughs> jobs and butts. Jobs and butts episode today. Glad to have you here for it. Thanks. This episode of Shortcuts is brought to you by James Pleitzer, Yulin Wu, Yan Terrio, Zachary Post, Vince Tuss, Megan Van Massenhoven, Aidan Nolman, and Heidi Rougier. Hi, my name's Heidi Rougier, and I'm a communication strategist in Toronto. I started supporting Canada Land to see the Thunder Bay podcast get made. Thanks for all you do, Canada Land. This episode is also brought to everybody by Endy. Nora, this is the most comfortable mattress that you may have never slept on. I don't know. What are your thoughts on mattress delivery via box? My mattress is from my partner's parents' basement, so I can't comment. Understood. One day, you may be in a position <laughs> where it becomes necessary to purchase a mattress. And there's a lot of things to consider, but one thing that I think is an easy decision is that you don't really want to go to some really strange, huge store and, and, and lie on a bunch of test mattresses in your clothes. So you're probably going to buy a mattress in a box that's shipped to your door. And when you do that, doing it from ND makes a lot of sense because they make them here with Canadian materials. And that means they don't have to pay currency exchanges or customs. And the shipping is cheaper. And it happens to be a wonderful mattress. I sleep on one every night. 
Shoot. You can try it out for 100 nights. If you don't like it, you send it back. They give you your money back and they give the mattress to somebody who really needs one. That doesn't happen that often because people really like their ND mattresses. So go to ND.ca and use the promo code CanadaLand for $50 off of any ND mattress. There's something else coming down the pike to Ottawa right now. Yeah, Rosie, they're uh, fueled up, fed up, and on the road. Talking about a convoy of trucks, about 160 of them. It's begun a four-day journey from Red Deer, Alberta, to Ottawa. Their beef with the federal government, the way it's handled the downturn in the oil industry, its handling of the economy, and what they see as its general lack of support for the West. 150 truck drivers began a cross-country road trip today from Red Deer, Alberta to Parliament Hill. Because on Tuesday, a convoy of about 200 trucks arrived in Ottawa. Well, I don't think, as far as I'm concerned, anybody that's a yellow vest is not racist. That was brought on by the media, by the left. In Alberta, yellow vest is standing for oil. In Saskatchewan, they're standing for the agriculture industry. In BC, they're standing for forestry. People like Glenn is really the key here. Yeah. He is talking strictly about economic things and grievances that he has with the Trudeau government in particular around pipelines, the carbon tax, and certain environmental legislation. The UN compact needs to be looked at. The Canadian government and the Canadian people need to control the borders. And, and that's an issue, and it's, a, and it's a big issue. Conservative leader Andrew Scheer took the opportunity to blast the Liberals for not doing enough for oil workers. It is time that Canada has a Prime Minister that is proud of our energy sector. I want to send a warm welcome to United We Roll convoy going across our country, fighting for Canadians. United We Roll, United We Stand, let's start building pipelines. Nora, um, you know a lot more than I do about taking to the streets and, and protesting the government. And I imagine, though I don't really know, that the difficulties are, you know, even if you're able to get a lot of people to show up for a protest, how is the media going to cover it? Are they going to give you a fair shake? Are they going to adequately report the number of people who show up? Will any politicians show up and sort of uh, endorse what you're doing or support it? Will the media marginalize you and try mm -hmm. to misrepresent you because of a couple of bad actors? With all of those concerns that activism and street protest have, at a minimum, you must admire this United We Roll <laughs> protest. This is our first time doing it as far as these are amateurs. And wow, they've done what no progressive protest has ever done. The media coverage is extraordinary. You should be learning from them. Yeah, yeah. I think that the message is that uh, for the left, we need a lot more white nationalism in our movements to get the attention of the mainstream press. There you go. That's what's going to do it. <laughs> it's kind of funny living in Quebec because uh, I don't know if you've ever witnessed a truck protest before, but the sound is incredible because in Quebec, We've had truck convoys recently, actually, protesting changes the government wanted to make to the trucking industry or, or, or unlicensed truck drivers. And just this past year, we had 3,500 trucks protest in various convoys across the province. And one of those convoys passed by my house. And it's a beautiful sound to hear all of these discordant truck horns. I bet you didn't know that we've had a 3,500 truck protest in Quebec. And that's probably because they didn't have the same rhetoric about, I don't know, the pipelines or white nationalism or whatever it is that's turning the, the mainstream press on. But this is not a remarkable event. This is not historic. This is not interesting. And, and even from accounts on the ground, it, it wasn't even 100 trucks that managed to actually make it to Ottawa. And so the media obsession with the convoy is pretty confusing to me. 
<laughs> and I think to a lot of other people. Well, I think it's only confusing to those who know that it's different than as it was reported. And uh, you've been keeping track of how it's been misreported. I think let's just start with the misinformation. I mean, I think there are some areas where we can very clearly point out that the media has gotten it wrong when it came to yeah. this protest. So we heard some early CBC reports that had it that there were 200 trucks. Yeah. Do we know anything about how accurate that is? I had two people on the ground uh, tell me that they you know, stood on the corner and counted how many trucks passed. And the, and the number of trucks were somewhere between 47 and 50, I guess. You know, you can lose count pretty easily. Not 200. <laughs> Not 200. Uh, and then the, the photos that have come out showing the crowd, it looked like there was a pretty strong representation of media and of police. And so the three groups together, media, police and the protesters, it looked like a, a pretty small gathering. I think that the way that the press has made this seem like some sort of grassroots movement that needs to be considered serious was not borne out in the numbers that actually arrived on Parliament Hill. And so then the question is, who is overblowing these numbers? Are they taking the organizers' words as truth, which I think they clearly are? Which is interesting because as someone that organizes protests all the time, it's really rare that our numbers are the ones that make the front page or the sixth page or the back page of whatever newspaper we're talking about. And so the question becomes, why did these folks get a level of credibility from the mainstream press that they clearly didn't deserve? Why do you think it is? Well, I think that uh, that the media is very comfortable with the narratives that that they were putting forward specifically around pipelines and energy exploitation. And it was easy also to kind of just ignore the tiny little nods to things like the evil U.N. globalism, these arguments around, you know, no open borders or anti-immigrant sentiment, which has been part of the Yellow Vest movement from the start, like anybody that's been watching the chat forums, the things coming out, who their leadership is, the way that far right organizations have interacted with the Yellow Vest movement, interacted both directly and, and indirectly. This is a movement that is using the cover of jobs and pipelines and oil exploitation to earn their credibility into the mainstream press, while then also talking about the UN being some international conspiracy theory to I'm not exactly sure what uh, override Canada with I don't even want to continue on that line because it's just so racist and so disgusting. But It is, but it's a, it's a consistent story that is a part of this movement that is not represented in the coverage. I mean, I like just to give this like a, an overview. We have had wall-to-wall coverage of this convoy and it's uh you know, it's been an mm-hmm. incredibly effective PR campaign as they've gone through different cities, it's gotten local favorable coverage, I think sympathetic coverage, you know, throughout Alberta and then as it hit Thunder Bay and meanwhile, you know, I just kept hearing reporters tweeting like, wow, the crowd just assaulted me, you know, verbally, you know, shouted me down, called me a communist. Indigenous communities, you know, be it in Sault Ste. Marie, Thunder Bay, you know, reporting on, on the, the affiliations of the organizers, people doing digging there, the anti-hate network looking into this, none of that making the mainstream reports. The mainstream reports have been really focused on this guy, Glenn Carrot, as a working man who is like explicitly focused on jobs in the oil patch. Mm-hmm. And you say, well, they're just, you know, they're giving these guys too much benefit of the doubt because any other protest, you know, you might say we had a thousand people and they'll say, oh, no, you actually had 500 or they'll defer to the cops who will usually give a smaller number or something. I think they've done one better here than simply handing over media space to the United We Roll 
protest and taking their numbers, you know, and, and it, it was reported as fact, a mass protest. I don't think that there were more than 100 protesters there. Uh, it's been reported as fact again and again, 200 trucks, you say 50. I know from people in Ottawa that they were so scared of traffic being like monstrous. They, they were told by the media again and again and again, this is going to be a day with 200 trucks. It's going to be just a nightmare downtown. And Ottawa shut down. It was a ghost town. People like, you know, businesses like had no customers because no one was going downtown. They went home at four o'clock. I found for this, you know, I got an anecdote of somebody just like closing up shop. Mm -hmm. Like it was a big nothing that the entire country was told was a mass protest. So the numbers were misrepresented. The other thing that you bring up is they're ignoring this little thing about the UN and migration. It's not a little thing. Nora. I was being facetious because obviously it's <laughs> it's critical. No, I, I, I of course. It is a part of their message. So even when CBC and David Common was sort of like going to these incredible lengths to say they are strictly focused on one issue, and then that same person, Glenn Carrot, who David Common was saying he's strictly focused on one issue, jobs in the oil patch, there he is a day earlier on the current repeatedly bringing up the UN mm -hmm. compact on migration. Even when they try to present him as a jobs and oil focused guy, and that's all he's about, he will bring up this migration thing and was not pressed on it by Anna Maria Tremonti. Yeah, I found that interview to be shocking, really, really shocking, because these folks are using dog whistle terms or, you know, we said actually on our podcast, Andy Nor Talk Politics this week, that it's not even dog whistle anymore. It's just straight up whistle, <laughs> um, that they're all afraid of this thing called globalism. And globalism is, first of all, it's not actually a thing. They're referring to politics of globalization where, you know, free trade and and policies that are owned by the right wing have ravaged people around the world. That is true. But the way that that this organization or this, these groups of organizations talk about this international world order it's a nod to very classic anti-Semitic tropes that, you know, there's a, a centrally managed economy or banking system or system of, of mass migration. And it's done very sophisticatedly. And it has confused way too many mainstream journalists. They have like clearly like when you listen to the current interview, I was I saw you were, were surprised by this. You were posting online. I was also posting online and very surprised by how ill equipped they are to actually press them, to press this movement of people for an explanation. What the fuck is the connection between you wanting to save jobs in Alberta, uh, the trucking industry, which is, by the way, going to be obsolete. That's the first thing that's going to be obsolete with self-driving trucks and cars and this mass fear of global migration. Like it's I think the reason why the mainstream press struggles with it, because it's so intimately Canadian. If you look at the history of economic anxiety in this country from the earliest days of immigration uh, to Canada from countries deemed undesirable, whenever there are, are, are moments of economic anxiety, the movement to turn that economic anxiety to be based in racism and white supremacy are intense. If you look at the Winnipeg general strike, the fight between white workers and workers who at the time were not considered white, uh, you know, being Eastern European or Italians or Jews or whatever, that's the story of, of workers fighting one another in a time of mass economic anxiety. And so it's not surprising to me that the press is 
completely ill-prepared to talk about these issues or to challenge someone like Mr. Carrot, who is a public officer, like he's an office holder, he's a, a counselor of some kind, to say what what exactly is the combination between these, these things that are, are seemingly disparate. And partly that's also proof of how successful the rhetoric on the far right has been with someone like Ezra Levant, who has pushed this ethical oil bullshit for so many years that it has actually become normalized within the mainstream media. So there are a lot of little threads here that are very Canadian, that are very difficult, I think, for white journalists to to see themselves absolutely playing into and giving credibility to these people, rather than asking very obvious questions like, how do you justify this globalist frame when there's obviously anti-Semitic elements in what you are talking about, for example? Or how do you justify being against this open borders thing? So Glenn Carrot is a, a counselor for Innisfail, Alberta, and both because he's putting himself in the public eye and asking for attention with his protest and because he holds uh, elected office. These are the questions that we should ask. I, I think that rather than asserting their anti-Semitism, I think you, you said, you know, it's, it's sophisticated. I'm not mm-hmm. sure it's that sophisticated. I think it's crucial that we ask them these questions because they have answers for it. They're very careful to, you know, cherry pick which aspects of their protest are going to be most fit for mass consumption. And I think the CBC and everyone else, but the CBC chief among them have shockingly uh, bought that and laundered it and even helped them to massage away the other parts. But I think those are the the only questions to ask these people because there's an answer. And Nora, like, here's the answer to the questions that I think Anna Maria Tremonti should have asked him, like, what, what does the UN compact on migration have to do with you wanting more uh, jobs in in the oil patch, what do all these things have to do with each other? They have a narrative. And that story is that Justin Trudeau is, uh, is treasonous. He's a traitor to Canada. He's not a democratically elected prime minister who we disagree with or who's mm-hmm. doing a bad job. He's probably the child of Fidel Castro. This is what they believe and say often. He's uh, in the pocket in the sway of globalists like George Soros. He's he's basically said that Canada shouldn't exist as a country. He doesn't believe in borders. He's selling our sovereignty. So this isn't just a question of protesting, a, a typical protest where you mm-hmm. say somebody should be accountable or they should be replaced. There are daily calls for him to be killed. This is a radical movement that believes that this is a person who has compromised Canada's very sovereignty. And as a result of this traitor who has been installed by shadowy forces that uh, are always Jewish in origin, according to this philosophy, we need a people's movement that probably involves killing this guy. And uh, the migration is is also a Jewish plot to uh, replace, the Jews will not replace us, to replace the real inhabitants, the real citizens of Canada with cheaper labor and to incite, you know, race war between. This is what is believed and it is asserted every time you look at their materials. At every protest, there are nods to this in any of their major online organizational pages, it's mentioned. And when Glenn Carrot gets airtime on The Current, he makes sure that he talks about the UN mm-hmm. Compact on Migration, even as the CBC is saying, here's a guy who's here to talk about jobs. So, uh, you know, I don't think we can get them to present that philosophy Enough. Like, I, I, it's so stupid that I want them to right. say it, you know? Right. But we also can't forget that we have a mainstream media that is incapable of contending with these issues, right? So the amount of time that, that Carrot might go on the air and say these things, or the amount of times that we have exposés to show that the leadership of the, of the Yellow Vest movement or whatever are literal <laughs> fascists or neo-Nazis, skinhead organizing, far-right people 
no matter how often that's said publicly, we still have this cadre of journalists who can't help themselves. Like they just can't ask the right questions or they can't treat this as the sideshow that it really needs to be treated as. And this is dangerous for all the reasons that you've mentioned. But like what I am really shocked by, I guess, is that we are in a in an election year. The liberals are imploding at a rapid pace. <laughs> like we'll see how the SNC we'll, level and stuff. We'll get unfolds. to that. Yeah. yeah. But this is the moment where a small group of far right activists have the ability to inflict maximum damage in the conservative movement. And so you've got the conservative movement that is split right now. It's split between a respectable white supremacist politics of someone like Andrew Scheer. And I say that very deliberately because that guy was sharing the fucking stage with Faith Goldie yesterday. Uh, and then to the right of that, you've got, you know, Maxime Bernier, who mm-hmm. is like just going full, full right to try and win. And somehow this is the movement that has united those two camps of the conservative party for the first time since the split happened, basically immediately following the leadership race. And so the impact on Canadian politics is fucking scary. And we have the roadmap to what's happened in the United States. We have the roadmap to a Trump presidency. Yeah. I don't think that Maxime Bernier is Trump. I think in Canada, it's going to have a nicer face. It's going to be kinder. It's going to be probably Andrew Scheer, or he'll hold the place until somebody emerges as a new conservative fucking messiah. But their impact is so dangerous and that they go on the national radio and they're not even challenged on these issues. I think that because uh, the legacy media has failed to connect the dots and, and you know, David Crosby, who's producing this episode, we gave them the materials they need. Oh, if they totally. want to know what the Yellow Vests are really about, uh, it's on the record. It's not that hard to find this stuff. And that work is being done by others as well. If they refuse to connect those dots, that allows a situation like this where Doug Ford will come and endorse this United We Roll movement, where Andrew Scheer will come and share stage with Faith Goldie, where uh, Jason Kenney, and they uh, are not put on the spot in the way that they were with, say, the rebel when we made the same connections with the rebel and saying, are you really going to validate this space? It is a hate speech space. This is a hateful movement that hasn't been done. And now we've kind of created like that precedent has been set. Before we move on, there's an aspect of this that I think is really worth talking about. I mean, you you talk about how inequipped these journalists are to ask the tough questions or to to reflect this stuff. I've been taking in the, the coverage. And while I feel like it has been terrible, you know, blowing this thing up and getting it wrong. There's a lot of ambivalence. There's a lot of reporters who are trying to talk about what yellow vests actually are, who are trying to talk about the UN issues. And I feel like there's been some kind of, uh, you know, sometimes there are editorial meetings, the higher ups of these organizations where they talk about what is our coverage going to look like? I feel like there's been a struggle for how to define this. And I think there are a lot of people who are trying to tell the story, but there, there seems to be a decision. And specifically, I want to talk about the CBC. Nora, They fucking hate the CBC. Mm -hmm. The Yellow Vests actually take their protests to the door of the CBC. They have a hashtag Justin Journos, now for all of us because of the bailout, but CBC is prime in their crosshairs and they call it the Communist Broadcasting Corporation. The idea that the CBC would be generous to the Yellow Vests or to United We Roll would be laughed at in those corners of the internet where they see CBC as enemy number one. Why on earth do you think the CBC is bending over backwards, as they have been, to accommodate and cast these people with their brightest spotlight and their most favorable light? 
Yeah, I think that there's probably two reasons. The first is that the folks making those decisions tend to be up in management. And often that's the furthest that you're going to get away from the ground and, and the furthest kind of analysis about why this all matters. It's going to be made by a group of people who I actually think really don't grasp the seriousness of the problem here. But the other side, which I think is the more worrisome side, is we know that the conservatives will cut the fuck out of the CBC when they are elected. And I imagine that there's a bit of self-preservation going on in the minds of the people that call the shots on how to frame these issues. And so, you know, because the, the corporation is conservative, right, like small C conservative, the corporation doesn't want to make waves. It doesn't want to take risks. It doesn't want to do the basic stuff that I actually think the CBC could do quite easily and vastly improve its coverage or vastly improve its representation of the news in this country. And instead, it's like, whoa, like we need to look fair and we need to look balanced. And and in that mentality, the fairness and the balance actually swings way far to the right. Right. Because it's not just their coverage of the right that is so fucked up. Like, look at how they cover they cover the left. Right. Like there is a fucking total blackout on talking to anybody who's more left of the NDP and even getting an NDP voice uh, into the into coverage of news is difficult. And the the smaller stations, I think, where people are closer to the ground, where it's more community based, you can hear news that reflects kind of their audience a little bit more. And the further you go up and the higher you go up in the corporation, the more conservative it gets and the more fearful it gets and the more like we have to save our own asses. And so let's play to the far right. I mean, I've never worked for the CBC. You're you're more of an expert of what that place is like than I am. But I suspect that there's also a, like a lack of oxygen being pumped through like the buildings. What I can tell you from my time there is that there was absolutely bias at the CBC. That bias was a bias in favor of an imaginary Canadian. In that building, in the Toronto headquarters of the CBC, where like pretty much everybody who's like a university educated downtown Torontonian, probably people tend to lean left as, and this is just like statistically true that people who had post-secondary education, majority of them lean left on the political spectrum. Whatever their personal politics were, the sway in that building editorially was Mm -hmm. that we lived in quaking fear of Joe Lunchbox Albertan. That we had a very patronizing image in our mind of a very square, working class Canadian, and we knew how much he hated us, and we were terrified, and decisions were made every day out of absolute fear that he would point a finger at us, God forbid he would take to the streets, and the the loathing we had of being seen as in league with, you know, squeegee punk protesters or Antifa-type protesters of the day, Black Bloc back then or whatever it was, we never wanted to be associated with them, and the, the idea of giving them a fair shake or coverage, God no, because that would confirm the worst thoughts about us, but if that guy went from his you know, suburban home to pick up a, a picket sign and stand outside the CBC, that was like the worst thing that could possibly happen. And I, and I, I look at all of this through that lens, remembering my time there and remembering how, I, you know, I think that the higher ups have looked at this as a, they've completely exaggerated this in their minds as the people's movement of Canada and they better cover it and they better be fair because they know that they're the ones who are going to get picketed. They're responding to the criticism. They're responding to the fact that, you know, these people hate the CBC. It's a very strange influence. So there is bias at the CBC. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you can feel that. That's very that's very clear. And I have friends, you know, who are journalists for the CBC and who not necessarily in Toronto, but who are very afraid of being seen as being left wing. Right. And it's like 
just be fair and balanced. Like that's literally all we're asking for. But in a world where being fair and balanced is somehow a, a left wing bias, that's really where we are. And when the CBC falls into that trope, it drives every like all of the other news coverage further to the right as well. And so that's where you get Obviously, you know, a a protest of 2000 people being called hundreds and a protest of like hundreds of people being called a mass protest. Right. These biases, they color how things are put into the historical record. And it's very alienating and it's very frustrating. And what makes me so confused is it's like, who the fuck does the CBC think is going to be protesting to save their asses when the conservatives want to kill them? It'll be obviously everybody center left. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody – Half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does Help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Nora, when you're not making your own podcast, you are listening intently to shortcuts, and therefore, you know that we have a section called Duly Noted, where we note things that should have gotten more attention. Do you have a Duly Noted for us today? I do. I do. So my Duly Noted is a story that I suspect a lot of people have heard of, but we haven't had this mass pouring out of uh, support and of collective grief. It's the uh, unbelievable tragedy that happened in Halifax to the Barho family. Seven children were killed in a house fire. And I, as a parent, I am like, I just can't believe that a Syrian family who fled horror and fled war came to Canada. And within a year, every one of their children was killed in a house fire. And I'll be watching the news to see what uh, fire officials say uh, about this new structure that went up so quickly. Um, but it's, uh, it's breaking my heart. I couldn't, I turned off the radio this morning. Like it's the kind of story that like, I can't even, I can't even like anybody could feel that, but as a parent as well, just the idea of it. And, and it was one of those stories where 
I mean, you're right. We have to pay attention because there's like, okay, well, how did that happen? But like, I can't fathom that level of tragedy and it's, it feels so random. And, uh, you know, yeah. there's this level at which I feel like there's there's nothing to be learned or gained from this. And I, I shut off my brain and my feelings to it. Anyhow, duly noted. I want to duly note another CBC item. Maybe this is a bit of praise for the CBC. Uh, I'm curious what you'll have to say about it. Whatever you want to say, Nora, about the CBC's coverage of what's happening in Venezuela, they did corrections right with this one story. There is this image that I think entered into the media ecosystem via Mike Pence, Mike Pompeo. Uh, it's, uh, I guess, I guess it's fake news. It's an image that was presented to the world and covered by the CBC and just about every other mainstream news organization that purported to be an aerial view of the Tienditas Bridge on the border between Colombia and Venezuela. And we were told that, you know, you see these shipping containers and barricades blocking this bridge. And we were told mm -hmm. that this was Nicolas Maduro blocking aid. And, uh, you know, you could kind of like be, wow, this guy's got starving people. He's got impoverished people. He's not allowing aid in. Really makes it seem like somebody's got to step in there and do something about this, doesn't it? Turns out that this bridge has never been in use. This is not something that Maduro has done recently, as was widely reported, to block aid. It actually is true that Venezuela is accepting aid, just not from the United States. But this was just, it was a fake story. It was propaganda, and, and it was reported incredulously. CBC, when this was pointed out to them by a guy named William Owen, as being fake, I, I, I full disclosure, know William, he, uh, he organized a Glenn Greenwald talk years ago and had me come moderate it in Ottawa. Anyhow, he pointed this out at the CBC, and they didn't just correct it, they ran a story about CBC explains how a bridge between Colombia and Venezuela became part of a propaganda fight. And, you know, a correction can be, uh, is usually less than the story. In this case, it was more than the story. And now everybody else is pointing to the CBC story and holding it up to every other news organization that got this wrong, saying, why can't you do what the CBC did and correct your error? So I want to duly note that whatever we want to say about the CBC's Venezuela coverage, they corrected this story properly. Yeah. And considering their broad coverage on Venezuela has not been great, that's important. And it's it gives credibility to the corporation that it can announce when it's when it's fucked up. So duly noted. So, Nora, I'm sure that this will be obsolete by the time people are listening to it, but we're going to talk about it anyhow. The news just came that Jody Wilson-Raybaud has met with Trudeau's cabinet and like it looks like they're cutting some kind of a deal. Doesn't it look that way right now? Oh, I mean, the, the liberals are master strategizers and we know they have a long history of corruption. So I think that whatever is happening right now, you can imagine that it is to look better <laughs> in the election that's that's coming up. So is that a deal? Probably. I mean, this is where I feel with this whole thing at the moment, I feel like we're not a real country again. Like, I, I feel like the entire country is just chasing its own tail with really legitimate questions, like like serious fucking questions here. Like, you know, the idea that the prime minister's office would sway the criminal system to benefit a massive company that donates money to that government and that they would put their thumb on the scales is like that is a fundamental question to a democracy. And the truth about what actually happened when you get beyond the, like at this point, hundreds of speculative podcasts and columns and discussions and panels is known to the prime minister of Canada, to Gerald Butts 
and to Jody Wilson-Raybould, mm-hmm. who has thus far been able to say, well, my hands are tied, solicitor, client privilege, whatnot. I've read some analysis stating that that's not quite as clear as it's been made out to be. These are three people who could clear this all up for us. They know the truth. And, you know, we represent the part of society that's supposed to just be about getting that information to the public. And I'm I'm starting to get from an early moment of glee, not glee that like people were losing their jobs amid this or that it was a, you know, ooh, a juicy scandal, but glee that maybe we would find out how things actually work between corporate Canada and government. Now I'm moving on to like a sense of dread that we're never going to know. When I read that Jody Wilson-Raybould went in for a meeting and they're going to call her to speak, but they obviously have discussed the terms of that. When I see that Gerald Butts has got some kind of a scheme where he's like left and is preemptively defending himself against accusations that actually haven't been made about him specifically, it just feels like everyone's getting their story straight and we're not going to get the facts. Yeah, I, I exist in a perpetual state of dread because I never expect the facts to come out. And maybe that's just because I'm I'm just such a cynic. But, you know, it doesn't take much time to spend working closely with government to see that we are living on top of a paper structure that um, that has a lot of myths underpinning it, but that the average person will never be privy to this stuff. Right. Like SNC-Lavalin is a major player. And they are majorly corrupt, right? Like there's criminal charges against SNC-Lavalin globally, right? And this is stuff that we've known for many years. This first came out in the diplomatic cables at WikiLeaks. I don't know if you remember this, but this was like the only thing that was mentioned about Canada and those diplomatic cables, which was Petra Canada and Canadian uh, involvement in Libya, right? And so we're talking about. I did not. I did not know that. I mean, this is just from memory, right? Because I, when that when that first came out, I was like, "Oh man, I got to search to see what Canada is." And there, there's mentions to Canadian involvement in Libya. Living in Quebec, you kind of have a different perspective on corruption, and not because of the way that the mainstream media has tried to frame this as Quebec being more corrupt, and therefore we support you know the corrupt uh, practices of corporations like SNC Lavalin, but we have had a massive corruption inquiry, and it it barely scraped the surface on on the level of corruption that is okay in this country. And SNC Lavalin was there. There's other engineering firms like Roche. And for more than a year, this was top of the news in this province of the kind of practices that were that were normal. And so some of these corporations are, are from Quebec, but they're corporations that, that work across Canada. You know, SNC owns, what, 17% of the highway, of the 407 highway in Ontario, the toll highway. They are involved in massive infrastructure products. If you go to Proactive Disclosure in Industry Canada's website, like SNC-Lavalin has contracts that are well into the billions. And so this is all stuff that we already know. You know, it was cute to hear Paul Wells on uh, day six this weekend being all surprised that this was hiding in plain sight. It's like uh, my my guy. It wasn't it's not hiding in plain sight. It's that the media is not doing its job to look at this stuff. And so I got to say, I, I, I never expected to to get the truth. I, and, and quite frankly, it goes so deep that I suspect that Wilson-Raybould, Trudeau, Butts, none of them really know the true extent of it either. And the only real thing I th- that I'm willing to hang my hat on is that Jody Wilson-Raybould is the only one that probably has enough integrity to be the most clean out of all three, and which is why events have unfolded the way that they've unfolded. I think I might have agreed with you about Jody Wilson-Raybould. There was a, enough reason to believe that she was acting with integrity until, I don't know, we'll see how this plays out. But, uh, you know, if you look at this from her perspective, 
what does she have to gain by burning the house down? You know, maybe she's played her card. Maybe she has, uh, you know, shown that she's not going to get with the team, uh, that she's serious about reconciliation, that she's serious about justice. And also that Jody Wilson-Raybo ain't nothing to fuck with. Mm-hmm. That if you demote her and hustle her down for not being a team player, she'll she'll get back at you. And maybe this will boil down. But to actually go further than that and be the spoiler who takes down the government, where does that leave her? Which is why I think that it's, it's possible she cuts some kind of a deal. And who gets cut out of that deal, if in fact there is one, it, it's the public and our right to know. You know, we are so distracted by so many things. Even with this, I mean, it brings up everything. The cartoon after cartoon of, of Jody Wilson-Raybould bound and gagged, which are repulsive, especially when taken all together. And then, you know, you and I were discussing, you know, like I was just saying, like, this is not OK. Mm-hmm. And I think you called me out to say, like, it's just misogyny. That's what it is. The only thing that's like preventing me from using such strong language, by the way, is just that, like, I feel for these poor sons of bitches, editorial cartoonists who have to draw these miserable things every day. And there's <laughs> not like, like, what do you like? Uh, how do I show that she's not able to talk? You know, like I, you, know, you take it all together. It looks horrible. But anyhow, they're not good cartoons. You know, we're distracted by door stopping Gerald Butts's wife. And oh, that's improper. Mm-hmm propriety has been uh, transgressed upon. You know what? Journalists knock on doors. Uh, the only thing that was wrong with, with that was that they ran the damn thing as an exclusive. And, and, and CTV said, oh, here she is speaking out. And she was basically speaking out to say, like, can you get the fuck away from me and yeah. my kids? Uh, you know, and that was their exclusive. And I get distracted, too. I certainly was appalled and I'm taking heat for it. But like the chummy culture and it goes it goes back to our first segment. There's nothing that will get people so upset in this country than a man losing his job. Gerald Butts lost his job. Let's take a moment and say some kind words about this good man who lost his job. People lose their fucking mm-hmm. jobs, you know? This is a guy who's hiding shit from the public and we had pundits and journalists tripping over themselves to let it be known A, I know the guy, we hang out, and B, he's a good guy. We still don't know what the fuck happened. There's all of these sideshows and, I don't know, touch points for cultural conversations. But at the center of it is something that I know you care about, but it's almost, Nora, for a left progressive like yourself, it's almost like a monkey's paw wish. Like, what if I could promise you a leader to a federal political party who would cut through all of the nonsense and promise to focus in on the heart of this problem? crony capitalism and then you say yes yes i want that wish and you're like aha but he also takes wild swings at drag queens and is a red pillar and his name is maxime bernier and he's an alt-right person like why is the only politician talking about crony capitalism maxime fucking bernier because no one's defined what capitalism is for him and what he's describing is capitalism (laughs) capitalism only works because of that crony like aspect to it. It's a class. They're protecting themselves. I mean, the reality is, is that like Butts, he knows where bodies are buried. Clearly, the outpouring of support and love for him is, I think, a lot of people who also know where some bodies are kept or at least know that, that that's what Butts knows. And uh, and it's and it's the Liberal Party. Right. At the end of the day, the Liberal Party is a fraternal order. Right. They're there for themselves above all. And this is playing out exactly how I would suspect it should play out. Now, the real question, I guess, that you're posing is who is the defender of the people's interest in all of this? And why in the fuck is it Maxime Bernier right now? And I think that that's a very astute 
observation that we know that the average person is disgusted by these kinds of antics. The average person doesn't like that we have a federal government that uh, preaches feminism on one hand and preaches uh, reconciliation on one hand and then basically treats Jody Wilson-Raybould the way that she has been treated, which has been abhorrent. Uh, they don't like that. The average person doesn't like to see Justin Trudeau be uh, open and kind and great and then find out that, oh, actually, he's also probably as corrupt as everybody else. That's, that's the status quo. That's politics as they are. And if you look at the United States, like these the new upstart uh, left wing Democrats, by just asking questions about the system that no one has publicly questioned in the way that they're questioning it, they're making waves. Right. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez asking why homeless people are being paid by lobbyists to hold a place in line. That's something that Republicans and Democrats have passed day in and day out and never asked that question publicly. When is that moment going to happen in Canada? And the far right sees that and the far right is seizing on it because they know that it's popular and that it's potent. Unfortunately, the NDP is, I'm not even sure, like their entire focus is a by-election right now and they just cannot get their shit together. And there's a whole bunch of reasons for that. And this is not necessarily the episode to talk about that. But Canadians absolutely need that champion and they absolutely need that uh, person to cut through this bullshit for them. And uh, as things are, I think our best hope is someone like Elizabeth May, to be honest. Well, Nora, the failure of the left to present figures like that that actually are connecting with people here in Canada and uh, the lack of relevance of the left um, is something that we can fight about on Twitter or perhaps discuss the next time you come on. <laughs> but that's your Canada Land Shortcuts for today. You can email me about it at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything you send me. We are on Twitter at CanadaLand. Nora, where can people find you and where can they find your podcast? People can find me pretty much uh, anywhere that the internet exists. I'm at NoLaura on Twitter. My podcast is at sandyandnora.com. And uh, you can find my writing in the National Observer and sometimes in the Washington Post. We have a website. It's at canadalandshow.com. And we publish original stories there all the time. Archie Mann's epic run on commons looking at corruption in Canada, which might be a timely topic. I don't know. <laughs> he wrapped that up this week with an incredible final episode of this season of commons, but he'll be sticking around for another one. Go and check out commons right now to hear about the Canadian mining company that is accused of using slave labor today, today. Now they're accused of doing that in 2019. This episode of shortcuts is produced by David Crosby. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like what we do, you can support us at patreon.com slash Canadaland. And if you give us five bucks a month or more, you will receive all of our podcasts without advertisements. Please do so at patreon.com slash Canadaland. Canada is a haven for white-collar fraud where nobody goes to jail. It'd be God forbid that we put our rich people in, in prison. It's nuts because it's a province of Canada trying to figure out ways to circumvent the Canadian criminal code. When we thought they were investigating us and everything's going to blow up, he said, 
here's the plan. Uh, you kill yourself and I'll take care of your kids. How can someone who I've never heard of and who's not a public office holder be like the key influencer at the biggest school board in the country? There's no way you're gonna threaten me. I mean, I am going to do what is right for my community. I'm Marshy Mann, host of Commons, and we've dedicated an entire season to telling you stories about corruption in Canada. And sure, you've heard about Quebec. Seven arrests of former Liberal and Parti Québécois politicians and staffers on 13 criminal charges. But the truth is that in many ways the rest of Canada is just as bad. I've never believed for a second that the problem of corruption stops at the Ontario-Quebec border. Like, that is, like, you know, ludicrous. Take Sleepy Khaled in Ontario, where the Mafia went to war with a small-town mayor. Her husband was beaten, she was framed by a federal official for tax evasion, and the provincial government? Well, they seem to be on the side of the mafia. So then he told me that he had some serious complaints against me, and that they could go away if we make these lands uh, residential. Or how about British Columbia? Today, the BC government's estimating that billions of dollars a year of dirty money was flowing into casinos and real estate, fueling the housing and opiate crises. People bringing in reusable shopping bags filled with bundles of $20 and $50 bills. And no one did a thing about it. Then there's PEI, which embarked on a harebrained scheme to try to circumvent the criminal code and defraud the rest of the country. And now they're stuck in a legal battle with a former CFL player. I played football back in the day. You want double team, you double team. But you're in for a long day. I'm going to hammer you. I'm going to break your will. To hear it all, subscribe to Commons from CanadaLand, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about CanadaLand, and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures, and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support CanadaLand. We need you to... And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman, found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.